Okay, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Tina. I don't know what that squeaking is about. Anyway, uh, tonight we come to the third and final lesson on the uh, burnt offering. Okay? And before we come to this lesson, we need to have a general idea of the advancement of the divine revelation in the Bible. Now first, the Bible is a book of God's divine revelation. And that revelation is, God has an eternal purpose that He wants to accomplish. Okay? And this divine revelation is not fully unveiled to us in any one book of the Bible. This divine revelation cannot be completely seen from just one book of the Bible. Rather, God's divine revelation is progressive. And God unveils His divine revelation. He advances it from book to book, from stage to stage, point to point. <clears throat> and so when we want to know the advancement of God's divine revelation throughout the Bible, we have to consider the sequence of the Bible. And so, obviously, this semester in the past few weeks, we have been in the book of Leviticus. And to fully appreciate what's going on here, we have to consider how the divine revelation of God, He desires to carry out His eternal purpose, how that is advancing, starting from Genesis through Exodus to Genesis, okay? So the first point here on the outline, Roman number one, says the advancement of the divine revelation in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. And A, A, Genesis reveals God's creation and man's fall, okay? Let's everybody read Genesis 1, 26 together. Ready, go. And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis, shows us God's creation. In fact, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by verse 26, we have arrived at the zenith, the apex, the summit, the top of God's creation, which is man. And man was created in a very unique and special and specific way. God made man in his image so that man could be God's expression on the earth. And God gave man dominion so that man could represent God's authority. And in this one verse, we see a little window into God's eternal purpose. God's desires through man to have an expression on the earth and a representation on the earth. And that's how Genesis began. But shortly after Genesis, man fell into sin. So the book of Genesis reveals two things. God's creation and man's fall. So if you look... At the beginning of Genesis, you have creation, but by the time we get to Genesis chapter 50, 
the very last verse of Genesis, it says here that Joseph died and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. How do you think? How do you think? What do you think of that? It begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth and the creation of man. And it ends with God's elected people, Joseph, dead in a coffin in Egypt. Not a good ending. So we can't stay in Genesis. We need to go on to the next book to consider how will God advance from this. And when we get to Exodus, we see here that Exodus reveals God's redemption and God's habitation. So praise the Lord. You know what Exodus means? Do you know what Exodus means? It means the way out. The way out. So though man fell into sin, God is giving man a way out. And the way out is through his redemption and salvation. And not only does God want to redeem man, and he wants to save man, but eventually he wants to build man into his habitation. So in Exodus 13, 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out from Egypt, for by strength of hand, Jehovah brought you out. Right? And then by the end of Exodus, the very last chapter, we have in the first month in the second year, on the third day of the month, the tabernacle was raised up. So, the divine revelation advances here to show us that God has a way to bring man out of the fall by redeeming him and saving him. And not only that, but he can take man and build him into his habitation so that God could have a dwelling place on earth. Right? Okay. Then as we advance on to Leviticus, it says here, Leviticus reveals the worship and living of God's redeemed people. Let's everybody read uh, Leviticus 1, 1 and 3 together. Ready, go. So, not only does God redeem us, and He saves us, that happens one time. But after that, daily, God desires that we would worship Him. Okay, I'll say that again. After we are redeemed and saved, daily from that day on, day every, by day, every day, God desires that we, His people, should worship Him. And from worshiping God will issue a holy living. When we worship God, it will cause a living that will come out of our being that will be holy. And then God will have a holy people on the earth that will express His image and represent His authority. So what God desires Back in Genesis 1.26, he now has a way to bring about. Yeah. Now what's interesting here is, in Exodus, God's dwelling place is called the tabernacle. Right? 
But as we come to Leviticus, it's not called the tabernacle so much, but mainly it's called the tent of meeting. And they are the same thing. The tabernacle is the tent of meeting. Okay. So what that means is, as the tabernacle, God's people is his dwelling on the earth. The tabernacle is for God's dwelling. But the tent of meeting is for God's people to meet. Not only does God desire to dwell on the earth, but he desires to meet with us. He desires us to meet with him, and he desires us to meet with each other. And so at the tent of meeting, we come and meet with God, and we meet with one another. And during this time, what do we do? We worship God. And from this worship comes forth a holy living that expresses and represents God. Okay? <clears throat> so at this point, we need to consider, what does it mean then to worship God? We may have the thought to worship God is to bow down and prostrate before God and, you know, maybe be quiet. Or we may think worship God is just carrying out some forms and rituals and services. But the Bible shows us to worship God is to contact God by enjoying Christ with one another and with God. Okay, I'll say that again. To worship God is to contact God by enjoying Christ with one another and with God. When we do this, we are worshiping God. And this worship issues in a fellowship. And this fellowship issues in a holy living to produce a holy people for God on the earth. Okay, so let me give you a demonstration. Um, Matt, can I borrow you? CK? Malik, why don't you come here? Okay, so Matt and I, CK, you're here. You stay here. CK is God the Father. Oh, sweet. Stand here. <laughs> <laughs> Malik is God, his son. You hold the word here. Okay. <clears throat> and Matt and I are two brothers in the Lord. <clears throat> Pretty simple, right? So, to worship God is to contact God by enjoying Christ. So, where, do we, where can we find Christ today? Well... I may ask, Matt, where can we find Christ today? We can find him in our spirit. And Matt would say, we can find him in the word. Right? I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So we may come to the word. And we may open up John, if you want to follow along, John 4.34. You want to, I'll give you a second to turn to that if you want to. So, you know, here's Matt and I. We're meeting together. <clears throat> and we're enjoying... John, here, you hold this. John 4, 34. Come here, Christ. <laughs> and we may read it. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Wow, what a great verse. Matt, Christ consider serving God as like eating food. What do you think? 
good. Yeah, that's that's awesome. What else? What do you see in there? <laughs> uh, yeah, that that to serve God, to serve the Father, is the same as like enjoying food to Christ. Mm. So serving should be something of enjoyment. Right. Serving should be satisfying. Serving should be pleasant. Serving should supply us. Right. I mean, that's what that verse is saying. Pretty crazy, right? So here we are, as we're enjoying Christ here. Like Christ, ah, He, he showed us to serve God is a matter of joy, a matter of satisfaction, of nourishment. As we are enjoying Christ, we present Him, we present Him to the Father for His enjoyment as well. Okay? <laughs> That's what it means to worship. We are enjoying Christ. The Father is enjoying Christ. And in this, there is fellowship. We have fellowship with God by enjoying Christ together. We enjoy Christ. The Father enjoys Christ. And this fellowship will cause something in us to come forth. It will change us. It will transform us. It will sanctify us. And eventually, day by day, God will cause a holy living to begin to issue out of our being. And we become his holy people. Okay? So that's what it means to worship God. Thank you, brothers. So when we get to the book of Leviticus, the divine revelation is advancing to the point where it's telling you, listen, not only does God create you for his purpose and you fell into sin, that's Genesis, and then Exodus shows you that God can save you and redeem you and he wants to build you into his habitation. But Leviticus says this habitation is also where God wants to meet with you and you can meet with God and with the other believers. And when you meet with him, you can have fellowship with one another and with God by enjoying Christ together. Okay, so that's what Leviticus is. So when we get to Leviticus, what should we expect to see? We should see, maybe it should tell us, this is how to worship God. It should tell us, maybe you should pray. Or maybe you should read the Word together. Or maybe you should go to church on Sunday. Or have home meetings. But that's not what Leviticus shows us. Leviticus shows us five offerings. Leviticus says the way to worship God is through these five basic offerings. And when we participate, appreciate, and apply these five offerings, we are worshiping God. We are fellowshipping with Him. And through that, God will produce a holy living and a holy people on the earth that will express Him and represent Him to fulfill His purpose. And the first offering that Leviticus points us to is the burnt offering. And the reason why we are spending three weeks on the burnt offering is because among all the offerings, it is the most important one. We know this because in other places, when the altar at which all the offerings will offer, sometimes it's just called the altar of burnt offering. And from the past, we know the five offerings are the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, sin, sin offering, 
trespass offering. So why not call it the altar of trespass offering? Why not call it the altar of the meal offering? It doesn't do that. The only other thing it calls it, the altar of burnt offering. And on top of that, when the offerings are mentioned in other places, like in Hebrews, it mentions only the burnt offering among the offerings. So we know that the Bible is zooming in, focusing in on the importance of the burnt offering. Okay, so why? Why is the burnt offering so important? For that, we should come to Roman number two. And let's read this one together. Ready to go. The burnt offering typifies Christ, not mainly in his redeeming man from sin, but in his living a life that is absolutely for God, and in his being a life that enables God's people to have such a living. If I were to ask you a question, and I say, which one do you think is more important? Sin or absoluteness? Well, maybe we can rephrase it. Which one do you think is more problematic to God? Being sinful or not being absolute? I think most of us would say sin. Which one do we avoid the most? Which one do we think the most? Which one do we fight and struggle with the most? Absoluteness or sin? I believe we will all say sin. We've been taught the Christian life is about getting a grip on sin. No more sin. Get it out of your life. Get it out of your being. We hear more messages, more sermons. We read more stuff on sin than we do on absoluteness. But the trespass offering was not for sin. The trespass offering typified absoluteness. So let me tell you this. Now, go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. So here God created Adam and Eve in his image and his likeness. And he, place, he places them in the garden. And God's desire is to fulfill his purpose with Adam and Eve. Simply by doing what? By eating the tree of life. That's it. If man would do that, he would take the first step in fulfilling God's purpose on the earth. Okay? Now we know the story. Eventually man was deceived, and instead of eating the tree of life, he ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell into sin. Now what I want you to pay attention to is this. When man ate the wrong tree, he was not sinful yet. It had nothing to do with sin. Sin only came in after he ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought in death and sin, sin and death. So man's fall in Genesis was not a matter of sin. Man's fall in Genesis was a matter of absoluteness. God created Adam not for himself. God did not create mankind. God created God's kind. You know, if you read Genesis 1, God created the birds according to their kind. He created the trees according to their kind. You just look at it. He created the cattle according to their kind. Every, everywhere where it talks about God creating something, it says he made it according to their kind. He made it according to their kind. He made it according to their kind. If we were there, we'd say, oh, God, it's so awesome. You, you, just, you made this giant sequoia. How did you, how did you do it? You know, how did you fashion it? God says, I just made a sequoia 
according to its kind. God, oh wow, look at this, look at this horse. You made this horse and it runs so fast. And how did you do this? Amazing. How did you make this horse? God said, I made it according to its kind. Everything. And then when we get to Genesis 1.26, we should expect the same pattern. It should say, go back up here, Genesis 1.26. It should say, and God said, let us make men according to his kind. But it doesn't say that. He breaks the pattern here. Man is not made according to mankind. To God, there's no such thing as mankind. It says, let us make man in our, our image, God's image. And according to our likeness, man is not mankind. Man is God's kind. There was no mankind in the beginning. God made man for himself. God made Adam for God. Adam was not made for Adam. Adam was made for God. God's desire that Adam would be for God and fulfill his purpose. And to do this, Adam had to reject his own desire, reject his own wants, and desire what God desired. But if you read Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve uh, considered the tree of knowledge of evil, they found it desirable. They found it good. They were thinking not about God. They were thinking about themselves. So the fall was a matter of absoluteness. So we think, man, if I could just live a sinless life, God would be so happy. God could really use me if I could live a sinless life. Well, that would help. But if we live a sinless life, but not an absolute life, nothing. You're back in, was Adam sinful? No. Yet he still fell. You understand that? That's why among all the offerings that we need to worship God, the first one, the most important one, is the burnt offering. And this offering typifies Christ's absoluteness. What the first Adam could not do, the last Adam accomplished. Where the first Adam fell, the last Adam succeeded. Okay? So let's uh, go on. So it says here, the burnt offering typifies Christ. Right? Not mainly in his redeeming man from sin, but in his living a life that is absolutely for God. And in his being the life that enables God's people to have such a living. Okay? Now, I didn't put any verses here. If I did, there would be about 4,000 verses here, right? Which would be the four gospels. If you want to see, if we want to see what does it look like, what does a man look like on the earth who is completely absolute for God, you just go to the four gospels, okay? Four gospels. And I'll throw, I'll throw a little factoid for you here, okay? There's roughly about 7,000 verses in the New Testament total. There's about 31,000 verses in all of the Bible, and 7,000 of them are in the New Testament. More than half of that is just the four Gospels alone. Okay. So really, the Gospels comprises more than half of the New Testament. Can you believe that? Okay. So if you want to see 
what it looks like to be absolute. You just look at the Lord. What was he like? He says, I'm not here to do my own will. My food is to do the will of him. I do not speak my own words. Whatever the Father speaks, I speak. I'm not doing my own work. I'm not seeking my own glory. Right? It's particularly the book of John, the Gospel of John. You see there a person who is absolute for God. Okay? <clears throat> okay, let's go on to Roman number three. Let's read that together. Ready to go. Okay, so the burnt offering is a type of consecration. And consecration means we offer ourselves. And so think about it. Think about what Lev Leviticus has shown us. Is here uh, you have the tent of meeting, and God's people come to the tent of meeting with something to offer them, him. And they bring a, a bull or an ox or a turtle dove or a pigeon and so forth. And they put it on the altar, and the fire of God from the heavens comes down and devours it and consumes it and burns it. And then uh, the result of this is a sweet aroma, a fragrance ascends to God to satisfy Him. Okay? So that means what? That means something was offered to God for His satisfaction. That's the burnt offering. So what does that mean? That means in order for us to experience Christ as a burnt offering, we need to offer ourselves to God. And the word for that, when someone offers themselves to God, the word for that is consecration. Consecration means I offer myself to God. Okay? And it means a few more things, so we're going to get into it now. Okay? So concerning consecration... There are five main points. I want you to get this because after this, I'd like to ask for some volunteers to see if you can say the points, okay? Concerning consecration, first, there's the basis. Second, there's the motive. Third, there's the meaning. Fourth, there's the purpose. And finally, there's the result of consecration, okay? So, on what basis do we offer ourselves to God? And on what basis does God even demand that we give ourselves to Him? Okay? So, with everything we do, we need a basis. If you were to move into a house, on what basis do you have the right to move into the house? Perhaps you purchased it. If you walk into a store and you want to walk out with some articles, on what basis can you take that? Because you have paid for it, right? <clears throat> so, would God has a solid basis on which He can demand, actually, that we give ourselves to God. And let's read that together. Let's read 1 Corinthians 6.20 together. Ready to go. So the Bible tells us that God has purchased us. The basis of consecration is God's purchase. When Christ died on the cross, He purchased us with His precious blood. And the reality is, we belong to Him. 
when Christ shed his blood for us and redeemed us and saved us, there was a transfer of the right of ownership. We think we are our own person. But actually, the Bible says, we belong to God. He has purchased us. And we have to recognize that He actually is the ownership of our lives. And based on that, just like if I went to a store and I say, how much is that? And it says, that much, and I give you that. You must, after I pay for it, I have the right to demand it, and you must give it to me. Whether you like me or not, whether you think you should sell, to give it to me or not, if I pay for it, if I purchase it, I have the right to it. And now, that thing belongs to me. So the basis of our consecration, of why we should belong to God, why we should offer ourselves to God, is because He has already purchased us. And, he, and we belong to Him. He has the right of ownership, okay? However... Even with a basis, that's not enough, right? Um, because even though we know that we rightfully belong to God, and even though God may uh, rightfully demand that we consecrate to Him, we may not want to. We may not feel like it. We may not even do it willingly. So God knows this, so He motivates us. So that it's not just something we do because we have to, but it's something we do because we want to. We willingly consecrate ourselves. And so the motive, point B here, the motive of consecration is God's love. And let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 together. Ready, go. For the love of Christ constrains us, and He died for all that those who live may no longer live to themselves, but to Him who died for them if we were like, if we were mere animate objects, like if I walk through a store and I want something, I pay for it, I grab it, just an object. We are not an, inanimate objects. Okay? We are living beings with a heart, a mind, an emotion, a will. And so God has to motivate us to consecrate to Him. And He motivates us with the love of, the love of? Christ. The love of Christ. Right? He sends the Spirit that pours His love into our being. And we begin to experience Him and discover how lovely He is. And we begin to love Him back. And being motivated by God's love, we willingly offer ourselves to Him. The basis of consecration, God's purchase, is merely by reason. We realize, okay, I don't belong to myself. I should give myself to God. That's just reasons. But... To be motivated in our heart with God's love is not just mere reason, but it's sweet. There's a sweetness to it. Like when you love someone and you marry them, not because it was arranged, but because you generally love them and you choose them. It's something of sweetness, okay? Okay, so with that, consecration is very solid. There's a basis and there's a motive for consecration. So finally then, what is the meaning of consecration? The meaning of consecration is to be a sacrifice. In Romans 12:1, Paul says, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, through the compassions of God, to present, to offer, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Okay? So there, it shows you, when we present ourselves to God, when we offer ourselves to God, we become a sacrifice. And what does that mean? A sacrifice means something was set apart from its original position and use, and is now set apart for God. Okay? So think about, think about the example of the burnt offering in chapter 1 of Leviticus. The children of Israel would bring a bull to the tent of meeting. And originally the bull, the position of the bull was in the corral, right? And its use was maybe it was used to plow the field. But now it's changed its position. It's now on the altar and is not plowing the field anymore. Now it's a sacrifice for God, okay? So the example shows us that a sacrifice means there's a change in our position and a change in our use. And that's what it means when we consecrate to God, we become a sacrifice. Except unlike the Old Testament where the sacrifice was killed, here we are a living sacrifice. Okay? All right. <clears throat> then, to finish up, the purpose of consecration, to work for God. Let's read Hebrews 9.14 together. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay. So here... To work for God is to be used by God. Okay, formerly the bull was used for something else, but now it is used for God. Okay, now the only thing I would say here is to work for God depends, if we want to work for God, it, that would depend on how much God works for us. The more God works for us, the more God works in us, the more we can work for God. If God is not working us first, we cannot work for Him. So think of that bull. The bull was put on the altar. But before it could be used by God at all, what has to happen? The fire has to come down first. It has to burn, devour, consume that bull. And once it was burned, then something pleasant, something sweet ascended to God for His satisfaction. So that shows us that if we want God to work for us, we need Him to work in us first. Okay, And that's the purpose of consecration, to work for God. Finally, the result of consecration, to abandon our future. And let's read Leviticus 1.13 together. Ready, go. And so, you know, the bull, after it was burnt, its future was gone. Whoever offered it had to realize, well, I could have done this with the bull. I could have had more bulls or plow more fields or have a big barbecue. I don't know. Right? But they had to abandon that. So the result of our consecration is that we abandon our future. Because what we offer to God, God burns it, devours it consumes it, and reduces it to ashes, okay? And so these are the, the five main points of consecration, okay? First, the basis of consecration, God's purchase, okay? The motive of consecration, God's love. The meaning of consecration, to be a sacrifice. The purpose of consecration, to work for God. The result of consecration, to abandon our future. 
Okay, real quick, let's take a five-minute break. Do we, can I get some volunteer? Maybe a brother and a sister? Don't you stand up and declare these five points? No, no verses needed here. Robert, before you go, let me give you a clue. So when I was young, the way I remember this was like B-M-M-P-R. Those are the words. B, and the two M's go together. B-M-M-P-R. So just think of those four letters, and you'll be able to get the words. Okay. All right. Good try. Go ahead. Somebody took it for Robert on Doc. Okay. Okay. So according to Robert's, the last one, uh, the last video he went to in with um, after his work was what you were just saying. Uh-huh. And then, um, by the way, <laughs> at the end of it, the last one. And then the results are after he went to God, the results is that he's a teacher, forward looking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So let, let, me, let me say this about the abandon or future. Okay. Maybe a little more. So, um, and this will tie it into the, the back of the page. Don't go there yet, but we're gonna, we've got to go to the back of the page. So to consecrate mean, for example, let's say I, I'm studying and my desire is to become a lawyer. Okay. So that's my future. I'm thinking, man, I finished school. I'm going to law school. Hopefully, I'll do really well and become a lawyer. Okay. Then one day, I hear about consecration. I see the basis, God's purchase. I touch the motive, God's love. He loves me, and I respond back by loving him. And I willingly say, okay, Lord, I willingly consecrate to you. Okay. And then, what? The purpose, to work for God. The result, to come and sacrifice. And then, sorry, the... The, the, the meaning to work for God, the purpose to work for God, the result to abandon my future. Okay, what does that mean? So I'm touched by God. Lord, I'm, I'm touched by you. I realize how much you love me. You gave everything to me. You held nothing back from me. You know, with the burnt offering, nothing, when you went to the altar, there was nothing left. That's why it's absoluteness. The Lord kept nothing back from God. He gave everything to God, even his own life. He could have done anything he wanted, and it would have been perfect. There was nothing he did that could be wrong. He could have cured cancer, end war, solve hunger, famine, whatever. Okay? We didn't have to wait for 2,000 years to have a vaccine. He would have solved that. I mean, everything, right? He could have done anything. It would have been perfect. But he held nothing back. 
He could have had an amazing life. We'd still be writing books about him. He held nothing back. He said, Lord, I give it all to you. He gave it. As a burnt offering, he held nothing back. He gave everything to the Father. So I'm touched by this. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is who the Lord is. He lives in me. I'm so touched. I should give myself to the Lord. And I want to give myself to the Lord. So I say, Lord, I consecrate my ambition to become a lawyer. Okay, what does that mean? That means I take my ambition to be a lawyer and I put it on the altar and then God's fire comes down and consumes it, works in it, devours it. And that fire is not a judging fire because it has nothing to do with sin. So God's not judging here. God is consuming it so that something aromatic comes out. You understand that? The sin offering isn't until later. The burnt offering wasn't about sin. The burnt offering was to become God's food. God cooked it so that it would become his food for him to eat and enjoy. And so God works on it. And so I have given that to the Lord and I continue my school. And I continue with my track of being a lawyer. But along the way, because I have consecrated that to the Lord, God's fire can operate in me. And I may, a year from now, two years from now, I may be at a church meeting. I may be at a home meeting. I may be fellowshipping with a brother. I may be reading some ministry. But in some ways, the Lord will speak to me. And Lord will say, Tino, I don't want you to be a lawyer anymore. You've given it to me. I consume it. And there's nothing left anymore. And I have to realize, oh, that was my future. I've abandoned it. It's gone. I've abandoned it. The Lord could take it from me because that's what the fire does. It consumes everything. And all that's left is ashes. You can't do anything with the ashes. Okay? However, let me say something. It doesn't mean everything we consecrate to God, He throws it away. First, what it means is He consumes it with His holy fire. And he reduces it until nothing. And as far as he's concerned, and as far as we're concerned, it's nothing. We abandoned it. However, with God, death is not the last step. With God, resurrection is the last step. Right. Don't, don't think that just because something's burnt and reduced to ashes, that God can't do anything with it. He created a whole universe out of nothing. He didn't even need ashes to create a whole universe. He could create a whole universe out of nothing. So if he can make a whole universe out of nothing, what do you think he can do with ashes? Do you understand? Yeah. So the Lord either will be satisfied and say, okay, I'm satisfied with this. Thank you for giving this to me. I reduce this to ashes. Okay. And if, listen, if the motive of love is there, then when you realize that, there will be sweetness. If it's just the basis of God's purchase, it would not be so sweet. Oh, you took that from me because you could. But if the motive of love is there, then it's sweet. Then when I cross that bridge, I would be okay. I would touch God's love, and I realize I did this out of love, and it's sweet. Okay. However, God may desire, Tino, I want you to serve me as a lawyer on the earth. 
or as a physician, or as an engineer, or as a teacher. And then what we do is he would take those ashes and he will bring forth something for his purpose. But when he does that, then when I become a teacher because of that, then it's not because I did it, it's because he did it. And when I become whatever I'm supposed to be, it wasn't because I did it and it was for me, but somehow God did it and it would be for him. Because the result of the burnt offering was something to satisfy God. That somehow in my life, whether I'm serving campus ministry or I'm teaching in high school or I'm operating on people, somehow that will be useful to God and will be for his satisfaction. That's what it means, consecration. That's what it means to abandon our future. Do you understand that? Okay. So let's finish up with the last page. I want to turn to the last page here. I mean the second page in the back. Okay, so when I was, listen, the first time... I heard about consecration. I, I was a junior here at UT, and uh, a brother in this room, I won't tell you who, but he's sitting way over there. <laughs> I was a young little guy who didn't know a thing, and uh, I started having Bible studies with him. I began to enjoy the Lord immensely. I, like, I was like, man, I just, I found like this hidden secret treasure in the universe, and I just was loving the Lord. And the Lord led this brother to help me consecrate myself to him. And I remember as a, young, you know, as a student, I'm like, consecration, like, I don't know what that word means, like, you know, like, when do I ever use it? So he says, he, he, he told me, the way to do this is you have to make it practical, right? He, basically, he said, we'll just give some teeth, you can bite into it, okay? So he says, if you want to consecrate to the Lord, he says, this is what I recommend you do. He says, you go home and you make three lists, three lists. And on one list, you see here it says, all that I am. And the second list, all that I have. And the third list, all that I do. Now, this is important because when we say, offer yourselves to the Lord, say, okay, I, I give myself to you, Lord. But what does that mean? Mm. See, what does that mean? So he made it real to me. He says, well, what are you? You are all that you are, all that you have, and all that you do. Mm-hmm. So he said, make this list. And then he says, pray before the Lord and consider what you would put on here, what you put in, what you, what you would feel comfortable to put on here. Maybe you realize, well, I'm smart, so, Lord, I give you my smart. I'll write that down. Lord, I think I'm kind, so I consecrate my kindness to you. Lord, I am impatient. Okay, Lord, I give you my impatience. You see that? And he told me that, you know, this is just a beginner. He said, keep the list. He said, because throughout your life, you'll be adding more to it. As you go on your Christian walk, the Lord will touch you. How about this? How about this? Something that you are, something that you have, something that you do, and you add on to it. You feel like, Lord, okay, I want to give this to you, Lord, for you to, for you to do something for your satisfaction. So all, do you, all that I have, when I consider, what do I have? I have a family. I write that down. I have an education. I have friends. I have future. I have clothes and cars. I have hands. Lord, I give you my hands. I consecrate my hands to you. You decide what I should touch. You decide what I should hold. You decide what I should do. Lord, I have feet. Okay, I'm comfortable. Lord, I give you my feet. You decide where I, where I should walk. You decide where I should go. You decide where I should stand. That decision's yours. I'm not the ownership here. You own them. Okay, all that I do. Well, what do I do? I eat. Okay, Lord, I give my eating to you. You decide what I should eat, 
how much I should eat, when I should eat, how much I should spend, sleep, study, play sports, listen to music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And that really helped me. I remember going home that night, and I made this list, and uh, it was about this size. And I just considered, for a little, okay, here's all the different things I am, and what am I comfortable at giving to the Lord? And I went according to that. The peace I felt, I could give the Lord this. I'm okay with this. And there were other things I just didn't feel good. I'm like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And I just like, okay, I'm not ready right now. I'm just not ready for that. So I just, <laughs> I kept it off the list. And then years later, by the Lord's mercy, because the fire had been operating me, came back on, came on the list, okay? So I'm done. The last page, so I gave, I, I gave you a, so that's a sample. And the last page is that. And, you know, you can make your own list. You can put in a notebook, store it away, put it on your phone, it doesn't matter. But, you know, if you wanted to use this, it would be something like that, okay? So just take this, consider it, pray about it, and see how the Lord would lead you so that we would experience Christ as the burnt offering, as the one who's absolute, who held nothing back from the Lord. He gave everything to God. And because of that, God was able to use him for his purpose. And with such a life, he enables us to have the same kind of living so that we can also be used by God for His purpose, okay? All right.